0: Joe Biden's closed-caption challenge, drunk L. King, and the NFL doubles down on woke. It's time for my Losers of the Week. Another week, another victory for Donald J. Trump. Two states down on the path to November and what we hope will be a yellow brick road towards the defeat of Joe Biden. But alas, It's still January and this man is still a reigning leader. He spoke, and I use that verb loosely, at a rally of sorts this week, but it was less of a rally and more of a game show wherein those in charge of closed captioning try to figure out what the actual hell Joe slurred.
1: We'll teach Donald Trump a valuable lesson. Don't mess with the men of America unless you want to get the benefit.
0: You heard Joe, don't mess with the men of America. But as one of those haunt on America, I can tell you we see no benefit in what Joe is offering whatsoever. In fact, we can't even understand it. But speaking of slurring and stuttering messes, my loser too this week is L. King, who decided it would be appropriate and professional to show up to the Dolly Parton tribute at the historic and sacred Grand Ole Opry right here in Nashville, Tennessee, drunk as a skunk. Watch.
2: Hi, my name is L.K. Okay.
0: it's bad enough she would show up to a performance too wasted to function, but it's even worse that this event wasn't hers and it wasn't about her. It was a celebration and a tribute to Dolly Parton, and if you can't hold your liquor, L, perhaps you shouldn't be throwing them back before such an important and significant performance. Dolly Parton fans have a right to be pissed, and they are. And you know who else has a right to be pissed? Football fans. Loser 3 this week is the NFL. You know, the Super Bowl has nothing to do with sexual preference or what or who you choose to do in the sheets, but the NFL didn't get that memo because here we go again. The league announced a night of pride will take place during Super Bowl week. The evening apparently aims to spotlight advances in the future of the LGBTQ inclusion in professional sports as well as the NFL's commitment to LGBTQ former and current players. For the love of God, why does everything have to be about gay? It's football. Why do you need to commemorate gay inclusion with a special night? Because the best way to be inclusive in sports is to shut the hell up about all the things that make fans different and instead celebrate and focus on the game and the sport that brings them all together. The NFL is just so damn annoying this year. The Black National Anthem, the non-stop Taylor Swift cutaways, and now this. It's a shock they even have time to play football. Those are my losers of the week, but I do have one honorable mention that I just couldn't pass up. Our OutKick founder and my friend and colleague, Clay Travis, who keeps trying to make Fetch happen with Nikki Haley. Watch. I'm not a purity guy. I'm not sitting around arguing. Like, all I care about is winning. And Nikki Haley does do well with suburban women who are independent swing voters and the people that are persuadable. And I'm not sure at this point in time that you can point me to anyone that Trump would pick that would help him win the general election as a vice presidential candidate more than Nikki Haley. Clay, 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 I love you, buddy. But as a woman, I will say, never, Nikki, never Nikki, if Trump is looking for a conservative female patriot, I'd say look no further than my next guest, a true conservative, a true warrior for freedom, and America first, Senator Marsha Blackburn. Senator, I'm so glad to have you, especially today, because there's so much information out there and so much back and forth in the news media about this border deal and what's going on in the Senate with McConnell and maybe meetings that were going on, possibly some guidance from the former president, hopefully current president, on what this border deal would look like. So you got to give me the details. What do the American people need to know about the discussions going on right now?
2: Well, Tommy, the number one thing on my list is I continue to say I will not vote for anything that will make illegal immigration legal. And what we know is this administration and Joe Biden, they've looked for every way possible to make illegal legal. They even came up with an app and said, hey, cartels, if you'll enter the name, the information, tell us that they're coming then we will process them. So they're doing everything they can to make entry between the ports of entry legal. Now, we don't have text, and I have to say that because we don't know exactly what is in it yet. We do know that there are conversations around some topics. And while we all agree that asylum needs to be addressed Parole needs to be addressed, and we do need to put Title 42 in place. We have to realize that we have immigration laws on the book. It's not like we are lawless when it comes to that topic. Our nation has immigration laws that are on the books. It says, if you come to a port of entry and process through, then come in. If you come between a port of entry and sneak into the country or walk into the country without proper vetting and documentation, you can't do that. And what they are seeking to do now would be to put a limit of 5,000 people. This is what we're hearing. And of course, the bill isn't, um, we don't have text, but they would cap it at 5,000 people a day. That's 1.8 million people a year who could come between the port of entry. Well, now, who brings people to the area between the ports of entry? Those are the cartels and the coyotes. And what we're saying is, no, you cannot do that. You can't set a cap and say, okay, we are going to cap it. And there are 5,000 that can illegally come a day, and that's going to be the max. And also, there is an issue over uh, the number of days that the border could be closed every year. Now, we, the United States of America, if we want to close our border 365 days a year, we can, because it is our country. But this agreement would say we could close that border up to 275 days a year. Now, Tommy, if you can't close your border one day, what is going to make it possible for you to close your border the next day? And I think that would be something that is very hard to control and to implement. And my concern is that with President Biden not implementing the laws that are on the books right now, Why do we think he's going to implement a new set of laws when his entire border policy is an open border? When we have a Department of Homeland Security secretary who does not believe in securing the homeland.
0: That's the frustration, and I think also, you know, a lot of just citizens on the left and the right are just very concerned about this border, but a lot of uh, voting Republicans are also concerned that something's going to go down, that Republicans are going to sell us down the river. I know that you wouldn't do that, Senator, but, you know, earlier today, of course, we have a clip with uh, one of your colleagues, Senator Mitt Romney, talking about Donald Trump and how maybe Republicans don't want to secure the border because that'd be bad for Trump's reelection. I want to play the clip clip of your colleague, Senator Mitt Romney. And then I want to get your reaction to what he said to the media. This
1: is what he wants, the issue, Donald Trump. This is what he's doing. Oh, I, think, I think the border is a very important issue for Donald Trump. Uh, and the fact that he would communicate to uh,
2: Republican senators and Congress people that he doesn't want us to solve the border problem because he wants to blame uh, Biden for it is uh, is really appalling.
0: How much truth, if any, is there to what Senator Mitt Romney just said?
2: I have had no conversation with President Trump or his team, anybody that has said, don't do something about this border. Uh, They're all saying you've got to do something about the border. The problem that we have is we have a president who will not do anything about the border. It doesn't matter what we pass, as I said. We have laws that are on the books. It is illegal to walk into this country, Tommy. If you were in Mexico and you said, oh, there's a big line at the port of entry. I'm just going to put me out here. I'm going to walk across the Rio Grande and I'll find my way on uh, on home from there. You would be arrested and you would be put in jail. Now, for people to just come through this border and then sneak into the country. That is wrong. And it has been a source of frustration that this administration has refused time and again to implement the laws that are on the books. They are so against uh, putting these laws in place that they even took the state of Texas to court because they wanted to be able to cut the razor wire that Texas was using To, of course, protect their state, but also to protect the farmers and ranchers that live and work on the border who were seeing their crops and their cattle ranches ruined by having people who were illegally entering the country going, traversing through their crop fields and through their uh, cattle pastures.
0: Senator, I know that Tennessee stands with Texas. And in fact, our governor, Bill Lee, tweeted out earlier today that, you know, he stands with Texas and their mission to secure their border and ours. And I know that Glenn Youngkin as well, Governor Glenn Youngkin, put out a similar message, stands with Texas. So what is your message to other red state governors and leaders around this country about what you'd like to see in terms of them standing in solidarity with Texas and what can be done beyond the Supreme Court? ruling to make sure that Texas has the ability to protect itself?
2: Yeah, tech, the Supreme Court's going to get another bite at the apple on a decision. And what you, I would encourage everyone to do, all of your viewers and also uh, other governors, you've got an Article 4, Section 4 provision and an Article 1, Section 10 provision and the 10th Amendment that all stand with states' rights and the ability of the state to protect themselves and the ability of the state to do the job when the federal government is not doing the job. The states constitutionally can take up that slack. And then also the states have the right to protect themselves from invasion. And when you look at what is happening in Texas, the thousands, 300,000, 302,000 people in the month of December alone coming across that southern border, Texas has this right. And they are exercising that authority that is given to them. And every governor should support Texas to protect their people and to protect the sovereignty of their state, thereby protecting the sovereignty of this nation.
0: I'm so glad that there are Republican governors and, of course, wonderful senators like yourself that are willing to to stand and stand firm. It seems like that has become a rarity these days, but I'm glad to see that maybe that's changing. I know you've got a lot to do today and your time is very precious, but thank you for coming on, telling us the latest about the discussions in the Senate with regards to our border. I know that you're fighting not only for Tennessee, but for the United States of America. Senator, thank you so much for your time and you got it. keep at them. Thank you. Immigration and the economy are undoubtedly the top issue on voters' minds headed into November. And those two issues are a direct referendum on our current leadership. But so is this, parental rights or the lack thereof. This next story is one that's becoming all too common, so let me give you the lowdown. Dan and Jennifer Mead were actively working with their daughter's public school after she was diagnosed with autism, meeting with school counselors and teachers to provide their daughter the best education plan as any parent would. But during this time, the school counselor and officials were hiding information that would indicate their daughter's social transition from female to male at school, removing male pronouns and masculine names from any documents that were sent home back to the Meads, correcting it back to her female pronouns and name. Well, the the Meads discovered what was happening when the school mistakenly left on documents references to their daughter using male pronouns and a different name. So after confronting the school about that mistake, the Meads realized the school was lying to them about their daughter for several months, socially transitioning her at school and never notifying them. The school counselor had also given the Meads' daughter a book incentivizing homosexual relationships called Heartstopper. Volume one, now the Meads have filed a lawsuit against the Rockford public school system, arguing that their policies and actions have violated their parental rights, which is constitutionally protected. Their attorney, Kate Anderson, with the Alliance Defending Freedom, joins us now to talk about this case and the issues we're seeing for parents across the country. Thank you so much for joining us and also just for fighting back against this. I know that there are so many parents that are seeing similar things in, in their schools and they're using this as kind of a roadmap on, on what maybe they can do to combat this. So I gave kind of the background there. Give me a little bit more information on, into how the, this family found out about this and what it did, you know, really to their family and to the relationship with their daughter.
1: Well, this was an egregious violation of parental rights, as you outlined. Um, This school was actively working with these parents who were very involved with school officials, with their daughter's education, working to try to help with the autistic diagnosis that she had just received to make sure she was getting the support that she needed at home and at school. And all this time, these same people who were meeting with these parents, talking to them about their daughter's well-being, were hiding from them actively the fact that these same officials were socially transitioning their daughter at school. From female to present as if she was a boy. Uh, They were actually erasing names and altering documents to hide this information from the parents, as well as carefully using uh, their daughter's female name and pronouns when they're talking to the parents while not using that with the daughter. Um, They found out because of a mistake, a record came home to them with a male name on it. So they confronted the school, asked, um, Did someone else's record get stuck in with their daughters? The school was very odd in their response, and it ended up Um, devolving to where the Meads found out what was going on. And when they confronted the school district about it, school district officials just stood by what they did. They said, you know, this is the way what we have to do and you have to understand. You imagine government officials telling parents, you have to understand what we're doing to your kid. Parents need to have these decisions. They need to walk through these things with their kids. Kids struggling with something as complicated as gender identity need their, their parents. And this girl went from really struggling to once her parents got involved, she's doing really well now. So you see just in this one example how important it is that parents be able to walk through these issues with their kids.
0: Well, I wonder, though, if that mistake hadn't been made on, you know, some of the paperwork or homework that was sent home, this family would have never really known what was happening at school. And this, as you know, we describe it, social transition that's being made behind the parents' back. And I think a lot of parents out there are probably on alert now wondering if the same thing could be happening. But there's another element to this, and that's, you know, the special needs of this young girl having autism, you know, that being already difficult to navigate in and of itself. And I think a lot of parents out there, especially with with students and, and children that have special needs, they're also really worried that their kid is going to be preyed on by administrators and social workers and counselors at school to really, you know, amp up the confusion in, in a place where these these young people are already, you know, confused, as most young people are when they're in school. So what, you know, what can you say about that and how that plays in to what the parents are experiencing, what the daughter is experiencing, and how the school interacted with the parents in regards to that, you know, special need of the child?
1: Well, parents have the constitutional right to direct the upbringing and education of their kids. So it's an important constitutional right at stake here. And it's a right that's recognized by the Constitution and the courts because we recognize how important it is for parents to be the ones making these decisions. And so when a school district makes these kinds of decisions for a kid without a parent, that damages that child and the parent relationship. And we're seeing this lying aspect of it being particularly concerning because school districts are hiding this information actively from parents. In some cases we're seeing um and hearing from parents where they've even been asking their school district, are you seeing anything? Um, unusual about my daughter. I'm worried about their well-being. And the school district officials are actively lying about what's going on at the school. And that drives a wedge between parents and kids because the kids are being taught they should hide this from their parents instead of work through things with the people who love them best and want what's best for them and want to help them with what they're struggling with. So it's a very dangerous cycle to drive this kind of a wedge between parents and kids. And we saw it so much in this case with the Meads, and we're very hopeful that we're going to have a great outcome there. But it's happening across the country, um, all over the place.
0: You know, kids spend more time at school, more waking hours at school than they do at home. So that's a lot of time that can be devoted to social transition or anything else that the administration wants the thrust on a child, especially an impressionable young person. But I'm wondering too, what do the needs, what do they hope to get out of all of this? What resolution do they want that would make them feel like they've not only done something to stand up for their family and their rights, but a larger picture for parental rights as a whole?
1: Well, Dan and Jennifer Mead have talked to me about they, of course, want to protect their own daughter, but they also feel like they can't in good conscience protect their daughter and then go away silently. They can't have another parent come to them and say the same thing happened to my kid and then have to say, Oh, I knew about that and I didn't say anything. So bringing awareness to these policies is extremely important, as well as the court wins that we'll be able to pick up. We've already won a case on this issue um, against the Kettle Moraine School District in Wisconsin, where the court stepped in and said that socially transitioning the girl in that case and not telling her parents and then Um, telling her parents they were going to continue with the social transition even after the parents knew and told them to stop, um, that that was a violation of the Constitution. So we do need the courts, I think, to step in here and stop what's going on. But we also just need to make parents aware. And I know that that's a huge motivation for Dan and Jennifer Mead is just to let other parents know that they have the freedom and the rights to stand up for their kids. They do not have to take this from schools and to be able to bring light to this issue.
0: How difficult is this legally, especially for states that have the rule of thumb being what they refer to as gender-affirming care, or, you know, as I would refer to it, gender-affirming delusion? So how difficult is it if the school then says, or the counselor then says, hey, no, it's the child that wanted to transition. We are protecting the child. It's the child's choice. So we have a duty to the child. It's what they want. How difficult is that legally to battle against, especially if you've got a child that's confused and they don't really know what's going on. They have been pressured to make this change or they have been misled to make this change. But the school can play it off as if it's the child's choice. And maybe the child would even attest to that, you know, under pressure or or under some kind of incentivized answer put forth by that school. How does that how does that work legally?
1: Well, the court did not buy that argument from the school district in our Kettle Moraine case and said that that didn't matter. They cannot violate these parents' constitutional rights. And that's right. The Constitution um, is over all of this, the constitutional freedoms prevail. And so parents' important rights to direct the upbringing and education of their kids is going to prevail here. And it's a very strong constitutional case. Um, But to the medical side of it that you were just mentioning, we're also seeing doctors and experts start coming into this case and start speaking. more broadly about this issue, that that this is something that kids need their parents to walk alongside them. There's not one size fits all approach to this. Kids are dealing with very complicated issues. Many children struggling with their gender are also struggling with autism, with um, anxiety with depression with other things and that they need a unique and individualized treatment plan to deal with all that they're dealing with um, whereas the schools are taking an approach that they should just step in start kids down the path towards transition without any kind of medical backing behind that so I think on that side of it that's starting to see the light of day and it's interesting that schools think they can do this because these are the same schools that will ask parents permission to give a child an aspirin mm-hmm. to go on a field trip to participate in extra Curricular activities of any kind, and yet they think that they can take these significant psychotherapeutic steps in a child's life without telling parents and while actively lying to those parents about it.
0: I know that you know your organization obviously it really is an ally for not only parents, but for a number of Americans that just need your support and your backing and are so grateful to have it. I'm also wondering when it comes to schools, because you, you've mentioned you've had more than one of these cases, does it matter if it's a, a private or a public school? Because I think a lot of parents think if they put their kid in an expensive private school, that these issues are you know not really a problem for their student being in, in private education. Have you seen other cases in private schools as well? Or do you think it's primarily happening in the public schools?
1: We're hearing primarily from parents in the public schools, but I think that it is a problem in some private schools. Parents have much more control over what's going on in private schools because they're paying for that education. So it's a different legal argument, but parents have much control over it because they're paying for it versus in the public schools. uh, It's the constitutional rights that step in more strongly, and it's where we're seeing it more widespread um, coming across the country in many, many schools. And I think having a case in Rockford, Michigan, indicates that this doesn't just Happen in large metropolitan areas. This is happening in smaller school districts as well. So parents need to be aware of what's going on at their school. Pay attention to the policies that are passed by the school boards, the resources that are being given to their kids, um, because just being informed will help you fight this kind of thing for your own child.
0: Another part of this is, you know, the book that was passed out to the daughter. You know, I, I haven't read the book. I would assume it's somewhat inappropriate though, uh, we've heard a number of titles that have come up, especially over the last few years in you know, certain places, fighting back against having these inappropriate books in school libraries to begin with. But that's a whole other element here beyond just the social transitioning, but then giving a student literature to try to encourage you know, a, a different kind of a sexual preference here. What can you tell us about that element of it and what parents need to do, not only to fight back against social transition, but from their student receiving uh, books that are really inappropriate for their grade level and really Inappropriate just for a public school system to be passing out.
1: Well, that's certainly an element in this case. They weren't just changing a name or a pronoun because a child asked for it. They were very actively involved in this social transition, meeting with this child, giving her resources and information like this book that was encouraging this sort of self-discovery of a new gender identity or sexual preference. Um, And the two uh, characters in that particular book one of those characters is discovering that he's gay and he didn't realize it and that's sort of the storyline that's being um, set out but there's also some fairly inappropriate graphic sexual contact between him and another student um, so this is the kind of thing they're planting in these kids heads and I understand why parents are concerned about it and they should be speaking out to their school boards and and finding out what's in their libraries and paying attention to this. But that sort of active approach by the schools to give kids resources and to sort of send them down this path goes far beyond just a passive To the extent they want to say that changing a name is passive, it certainly isn't, Um, but it goes far beyond just changing names. They're actually encouraging a transition. And in another case that we're um, getting involved in there, the school district was giving the student information about medical transition. And I think that's happening more than we think that they're getting information to find doctors, surgeons, places where they can get hormones with or without parental consent. And those resources are coming through to kids in part through the school districts.
0: It's so sad, you know, it hasn't been that awful long since I was in school and we didn't deal with this, I'll tell you that. There, there was a lot of things that went on in schools and you know a lot of things that maybe I disagreed with educationally or curriculum-wise, but the teachers and administrators were certainly not trying to change our genders or transition us or get us to change our sexual preference. That wasn't part of my upbringing, that wasn't part of my schooling, and it's really sad that parents and students have to deal with this now. That's why, obviously, Alliance Defending Freedom is so fantastic, you guys stepping in and fighting that fight and, and giving parents the resources and Amer- Americans the resources to stand up for their freedoms. Thank you so much for sharing this case with us. Our best to the Medes and their fight and for your ongoing cases. And it really is a godsend for so many parents out there and it gives them a roadmap. So thank you for all you're doing and thank you for sharing the story with us.
1: Thank you for having me on the show.
0: Thank you so much. All right, folks, that does it for us this week from Nashville. God bless and take care.